space race really, coincidentally, sort of really took off, pun not intended, sort of after the conclusion of this Project Blue Book era. Um, in fact, NASA itself was founded not just a few years after the at least published conclusion of Project Blue Book. Um, it does seem, without you know, relying on official documents, that there was some level of continued tracking that went on following Project Blue Book. It just wasn't really an official program of record or anything like that. Um, that's not to say that it was trying to be swept under the rug. It probably meant, you know, it's a general bureaucratic nature of the Department of Defense that somebody, part of their portfolio was just to keep a note or a log on any potential events that may be of interest um, to the United States military or even just the government. And you could, there's some comments recently as part of this sort of disclosure movement that kind of has been taking place recently that really indicated that they got a lot of resistance from some of the more obscure intelligence services such as uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency. So, I mean, they're not under you know, any particular chief of staff of one of the military services. They're not under the CIA or the NSA. They're kind of this weird, you know, entity under only the Secretary of Defense who is a political appointee and a cabinet member. So there's just some interesting organizational nuances to some to an entity like the Defense Intelligence Agency. But as you can imagine, if there was someone tagged to just keep a loose or casual eye out on these sort of UFO events, it would have been in one of the intelligence departments. You know, it's not going to be all that surprising if someone at Navy Intelligence or someone at Air Force Intelligence had someone whose portfolio was 100%. Not the entire portfolio, but they were literally the person with the requirement to track these And I think as we get further down the story, I think it's clear that that was going on. And it makes sense. You know, it starts sort of get a picture here of kind of what the perspective of the federal government may have been. And if you go back again in the fifties, as we get into the sixties when we started all of that, go back and read what a lot of random people have kind of said over the years, even back then, whether it was directors of the CIA or different people in the Department of Defense or even some secretaries of state. Um, and even people like, you know, the Rockefeller family, who were just wildly interested in the subject and had the money and the political influence to push things around a little bit. Just getting a feeling, sort of an impression, a shape begins to take form that this idea was just something people didn't really want to touch for some reason. 
and again. Um, number of reasons. It's hard to conclude what exactly the full reason may have been. But I keep coming back to a logical explanation that they at least took a look at some of these things. And then there's really two explanations. They either knew what they were, so they didn't need to keep evaluating them. Or after looking at literally a thousand events, they had really no better idea of what they were than they did when they started the investigation. So what value was there in continuing to look at something that wasn't going to give you any answers? Uh, they were unknown objects, and one might say that in some situations they were unknowable objects. Like there are unknowables when you observe something. If you're never going to get closer to it and you are very limited in the data, that you have about the object, you may arrive at a situation where the data literally allows no conclusions to be drawn. So what value is there to continue to look at the same data over and over to tell you that? And I think what you probably got in the federal government at this time was you know, some psychological, you know, some psychological, cultural, political resistance towards these things. Um, they were fanciful. You know, this was the beginning of the sci-fi era, right? So this sci-fi wasn't a part of the culture then like it was now, um, especially in the early 50s. I mean, that's a very particular time um, in American history that is sort of a, it's sort of a blink between World War II and sort of the height of the Cold War. Like, you know, once we actually put a man in order, they put a man on the right? That 50s is really that, is that blink when we had, you know, the Red Scare and all this communist stuff going on at a domestic level. But it's kind of a blink in terms of international things that tend to get the focus of history so there you go. You were up to you know the Apollo program in the early sixties. I mean, shut down. by the blue book there in the fifties after some of these things happened? They concluded that most of them they could count. You know, most of them they could identify. Most of them couldn't. And now we're in the sixties. Now we've got Vietnam about to kick off. We just dealt with Korea, or we're winding up Korea. And we're dealing with the Soviets getting up in space and sputting all that. Now we're trying to put a man on the moon. The Apollo program gets kicked off early 60s. And don't hear, well, there's not a big record of a lot of UFO reporting in the 60s. There's some. But it's like. Once the space era of humanity kind of kicked off, it's almost like there was a tailing off of UFO observation. And again, it kind of goes a little bit, I don't want to say suspiciously, but coincidentally at least, to astronaut technology 
expands the number of confirmed observations or accepted observations seems to dwindle. So I'm just going to take a glance back the last 10 years. I don't remember a single legitimate flying saucer picture or report from any pilot um, or just people out with their cameras and all that stuff, right? We already talked about how crazy it would be for one to exist and someone not get a photograph of it. Ooh, we'll come back to see if we can check to draw conclusions from that. But so they're in the space race. Now, I don't want to get into a whole bunch of theories about potential extraterrestrial space program. We do have some evidence, though, that has come out of different people saying um, that NASA encountered extraterrestrial evidence and astronauts come out and say it. But what you end up with at the end of the day, when you put all this evidence together, you've got some astronauts who just ignore the topic and act like it's crazy. You have some other astronauts who are like, yeah, yeah, they have evidence. NASA has pictures, and they find it, it's gone. They were there. You have engineers who are in some of the launch rooms who will come out and say that absolutely there was evidence, and if it's, you know, the original tapes are gone, we don't know who took them. Uh, you know, we weren't allowed to talk about certain things. And again, it leads us back to that cover up scenario or that. Control of information or the conspiracy theory. So, which is it? And again, the same kind of things that we were discussing with the Department of Defense still apply to NASA in the 1960s. Now, I do think that NASA employees probably had more, or maybe not more, but less risk to come forth, but there was additional factor that NASA that your normal military people didn't face. That's sort of the weight of history. And so if you just think about it, you know, even if you saw something as an astronaut, you probably didn't know what it was. Right now that immediately classifies it as a UFO. Problem is for someone like that in that position, UFO immediately gets attached to aliens, right? That's what, which is probably why the U.S. government moved away from UFOs into UAPs, right? Unidentified aerial phenomenon, because UFO is literally attached to extraterrestrials, to aliens. Um, so if you're a NASA, you're an astronaut, you know, you're one of the few people in the history of the world to be an solar system traveler like left a planet to, and gone to outer space. So your place in history is already there. And so there's a risk that if you start coming out in support of these ideas that other people would consider conspiracy theories or not theories or people you risk tainting your own legacy and tainting history and further it's something like space program, the Apollo program, before we got the shuttle, 
we had a huge national pride um, in the space program. Right, America is involved because we're talking about it. It was a big deal. Uh, you risked upsetting you know, that national pride, that sort of purity of unity in the space program that Americans had by dragging space program into this UFO extraterrestrial sort of equation. So there was some resistance there. Even for those who want to say something. And again, a lot of them didn't come out with what they said until it was later in life. And all of again, all of the things that we said before still applied. If you're a retired astronaut, a lot of astronauts came from the military. They might have had military retirements. All of you know their pay for NASA and any retirement pay that they got for NASA would also be from the federal government. And we're still in the 60s, like the civil rights movement hasn't fully blossomed yet. We don't have whistleblower protections just yet. We don't have the internet. We don't have a lot of these things that connect different parts of society to really help blow the lid off of things and then provide you some protection still be very isolated in the 1960s, um, and there's still, that you can imagine, that institutional resistance to being that whistleblower. Um, but again, astronauts are so credentialed, they're so educated, they're so valued that they could have offset the financial institutions fairly easily, even if they would have come out with qualified admissions of observations that they had made. So it's harder to lay it on just economics as easily as you can for the military members from the late 40s and early 50s. However, that military federal government apparatus coming out of it, it was still robust. We don't have to read very many stories from the FBI in the 1950s to understand just how unrestrained that they were in going after American citizens. So it was not that difficult even as you get into the mid-60s for the federal government to really target someone and silence them and take them down even in universities that yeah, I was targeting people for their beliefs in communism and all these other things. And so it is not a stretch for them to go after even a NASA or even an astronaut who were disclosing things that maybe they were told not to talk about. And they could be validly ordered not to talk about what happened on their mission. And again, this goes back to some of the things we mentioned about why we're going to have a cover-up. It's absolutely, I think, indisputable that there were things about the space program that were secret. All of those rocket launches, all of those things, the satellites, they all point into our nuclear track and the development of our ICM, ICM force, our nuclear weapons, um, and our military ISR and communications, all of these things. So an entire mission 
literally be classified, and it didn't matter what you saw, your orders would be not to talk about it. If you broke those orders, it would be subject uh, to different federal laws. And I mean, in some cases, you literally could probably go to jail. Again, this is before that whistleblower concept that it came into being, where if you saw something um, that was against the law, you could bring it up. But classifying information based on potential law orders that an enemy might be able to get, that's not breaking the law. So it would be really hard to even justify a whistleblower complaint or a whistleblower theory when it's literally just information that's being And We'll talk about this maybe later, but there is a big, there's a big paranoia in the whole, what is called call it, defense realm of national security, and it's not even just with the U.S., it's really with everyone, and it, and it kind of goes something like this. If your society knows about it, then your adversaries know about it. So the only way to keep that information out of the hands of your adversaries to keep that information out of the hands of your citizens. That's purely logical, and it makes purely logical sense. And so, when you have that paranoia, where you're literally afraid of the enemy learning anything, that's where that other phrase, loose ships, or loose lips, sick ships, that has been true in the past, and no one ever really knows what piece of information is it that's going to be the key to the enemy to literally overtake you in a technological or military advantage. And whether that paranoia is reasonable or not to the level that exists, it's hard to say. But what we can say is that some level of that paranoia exists, and it drives a lot of this control of information. And it's not necessarily nefarious control of information. It's good intentions, but the only way to protect that information is to keep it from everyone. And so, what you see then is a leaning towards controlling information. You don't know whether you should release it or not. You just don't release it. Like I said, um, have you ever seen the movie Dodgeball? Or uh, he's talking about the Freedom of Information Act. Maybe he's finally got something right. You know, there was a reason that came around because this mentality that we're talking about existed there in the fifties, in the sixties, through the space program, and not until you know whenever the Freedom of Information Act was back in its first version. That was the first time that something like that passed through Congress that hey, some of this controlled information doesn't need to be controlled. We need to have a mechanism to review that government. Then release it to the public because the public has a right to know because you know, in a democracy, theoretically, it's the people's government and therefore it's the people's information. Despite that, and despite the 30 or 40 years or so that we've had a concept of the freedom of information, we're still insisting in a very paranoid environment. And I would say that the information age and the internet really driven this paranoia to an even higher level than maybe it was in the 1950s and the 1960s. And 
there are some implications for that, which in some ways makes this whole disclosure movement on the UFO angle a little bit ironic. And so we get through the space race, we get a man on the moon, do all these lunar missions. Our ICBM program develops into the minimum program into the 80s. And really what you have during this period is you do have some allegations of different conspiracies and things found on the move and moon on different things. And like, you know, there's some questions of why cameras were pointed certain ways on the moon. And it's not unreasonable to expect that in addition to just doing space stuff, NASA stuff, moon stuff, that the astronauts could have been doing some kind of experiments and things of a defense nature, of a military nature while they're up there. You know, I mean, one example would be, you know, how does a bullet fly? How does an M-16 work on the moon without that gravity? You know, how would that affect the performance of weapons up there? Right? They could have been doing all kinds of things off camera that were, by their very nature, classified. They would have been classified whether they were doing it on the Earth. Um, and they're still classified because they were doing it on the moon. So while you had all these conspiracy ideas, ideas about covers up and what they found in space, um, there's a lot of legitimate explanations for different secrecy aspects of the Apollo missions and just the space missions in general. Um, additionally, It's hard to know how much the Department of Defense and NASA had any crossover when it came to protecting information. Likely there was some crossover, but it's unlikely, and I have never heard any reports of this, is there was anything like a Soviet-era intelligence officer plugged in to make sure anything that was done or said by the whole operation fit with some predetermined narrative or some predetermined explanation. Never really hear anybody saying any of those kind of things. You know, the stories that come out are more along the lines of there was some evidence collected or photographs taken that showed some things that were unexplained or maybe tended to give some credibility to the UFO phenomenon and they disappeared or they never revealed to the public or whatever. Very, very, very likely that there's a number of scientific measurements, photographs, different readings that were taken during the whole space program that have never been released to the public and some of them may have been destroyed. And if you go back and start to look at that in the same perspective as the conclusions drawn from Project Blue Book, it's really easy to kind of see how the same math would have been applied to what NASA was seeing. So what Project Blue Book gave us was yeah, we have a lot of uh, things that happen, but we don't know what they happen. We don't know what they are or why they're happening at the time. We look into them. Most of them are able to explain away with practical, logical explanations. Some of them you can never explain. 
And so get to the point where they already knew what they didn't know. And unless somebody at a high enough level in the federal government was willing to say, no, this new evidence changes the fact that we don't know what these are, then that was always going to be the official line because in most most likely outcome is they don't know what they are. Um, and without firm evidence, you can't really conclude that they were extraterrestrials or aliens or anything else. They're just the data supported no conclusions. And when we're brand new in the space environment, I think it's very easy to say, okay, we don't know what this means. We don't know what this is. It could be any number of things. And so we're not going to speculate about what it might be. And I think that's an important thing to note in the whole UFO phenomenon is that not knowing what it is and then trying to talk about what it is is by definition speculation. Because the only evidence that you have is what it looked like. Uh, and that's just not very much evidence for anything. And so I think nothing really changes from a federal government standpoint from the motivations for launching Project Google all the way through the space program. And then as we get into the space program and the height of Cold War, there's just more reason, there's more pressure uh, to be even more secretive about what we see in space and what we're able to discern or observe in space and then how well we're able to identify whatever we see in space, right? I mean, you don't want to tell your adversaries, well, we can see a little bit from space, but we can never really tell what it is. I mean, you just don't want that kind of information getting out there. And so, this is kind of the peak of that point where people just want to talk about UFOs. It starts to take on that topic, like they looked into this, couldn't figure out what some of these things were, but they couldn't conclude that they were aliens, extraterrestrials, and without some sort of smoking gun, we're never going to be able to conclude that, no matter what we see or what evidence that we get, you know, outside direct contact. So we're just not going to waste our time speculating about what these things could be. And I don't think that that's an unreasonable position for for the U.S. government to have taken at that time. And it's easier for us today to kind of say, well, I mean, wouldn't you want to at least check it out? Because in the internet age, it's so easy to cross-reference data. It's so easy to look on the webs on the web and find out every single aircraft that's got a transponder in the air in any location. They can track all of these flights. We can do all of these things today. There's so much information at our fingertips that allows us to even do a cursory examination of something. Like you see an airplane in the air, well, let's go online really quick. In five minutes, you can know whether there was an aircraft there from a commercial airline or even from a military plane unless they're flying with their transponders off. And so that's not something that they had in the 50s and 60s. You know, 
And you can also sort of attribute this knowledge of the airspace to we haven't had any air collisions for a long time. It's been a long time since we've had major aircraft accidents. But back in the 60s and 70s, like places like Brazil and other places, you had airplanes crashing into each other at high speed in the air. That was crazy. Just because the information sharing and the geolocating just wasn't advanced and as vigorous as it is today. So the easy answer for everybody always involved was just to say, we don't know what this is, we're not going to waste time speculating, we're going to do it. So that attitude really just kind of took over. That became sort of the driving philosophy about it, and it kind of led to, you know, the ridicule about it. And the secrecy aspect is a little bit harder to imagine, because you don't really know. But there's a difference between not recording data and keeping data and then keeping it secret. And so what that means is when an event happened and they weren't interested in studying it, keeping a record of it, whatever, then there was no record kept and there was nothing to keep secret. So the absence of material is not the same thing as secrecy. Now, where that can get blurred is if somebody wants to keep something secret, and so they therefore destroy the information. But what I find is that in a bureaucracy, even at a scientific level, it's not very likely, mainly because the whole idea that information is dangerous, information is powerful, and why we have all these rules about information, and it leads to a situation where we're not going to destroy information that may be valuable when we don't know anything about it or what it means. And while we're on the subject, I'm just going to get on a soapbox real quickly. Some of this ET stuff, it seemed to really twist some people the wrong way at some point. You know, you had at some point, you know, in this era, they launched SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and all that kind of stuff. And you get all these scientists, you know, in the academic community, whatever, saying what they're going to say. And then you have, oh, I don't even know if I remember who it was, Carl Sagan or somebody says, right, you need extraordinary evidence to make extraordinary claims. And I really think that's just a really unfortunate phrase, really bad use of language. Because when it comes to First of all, when it comes to science and technology, anything that's new is by definition extraordinary. It's not ordinary. It's out of the ordinary. And so by definition, any evidence of extraterrestrials of any kind is going to be extraordinary. Like a photograph of a damn UFO is extraordinary because we don't see it ever, right? And so... What I think he was really trying to say, but you need some sort of verifiable observation. Like it can't just be an accepted observation. It's got to be something testable. Um, and if you think about it from like a SETI standpoint, you need more than just some random radio wave from a distant galaxy that seems to be communicating some type of information. 
right? That alone, while extraordinary, would still not be enough for us to conclude anything. So it was a really bad phrase, you know, scientists aren't good with language, that's fine. But unfortunately, it's been seized on by people uh, who don't want to give any serious attention to the UFO thing. And that sort of drove this attitude about it. And where you would want a place like academia, academia and these academic institutions to be on the forefront, on the cutting edge, where you know, universities was to be where free new ideas just flow freely without restriction. But what you don't get is that at all. You know, you get careerism from academics who want to get published and get tenure and be accepted within their field and respected and all the lucrative and monetary benefits that come with that. So you really don't get very many of your best people to come out with an objective and open mind on some of these topics because they've had attained to them, because people didn't say things like you need extraordinary evidence to even consider that there's a possibility. You know, that's just irresponsible from a scientific standpoint. Um, if you went by that standard, you know, we'd have no technological advancement at all, right? You know, Columbus would have never freaking left Europe if you needed extraordinary evidence to make a to make a claim that there was another continent or another route to India out there, right? So, I mean, unless we're going to say that Columbus had a map, you know, maybe we'll do another podcast on Columbus and a map someday. But historically, it's not accepted that Columbus had a map that showed North America or South America. And so he just set off into the wild blue. And if he were to use, you know, that extraordinary evidence standard, well, he was just being an idiot. Clearly, he wasn't. So, there we are. Have all these nuclear events. The federal government knows about that. The Department of Defense knows about that. You have this whole history of institutional knowledge about UFO-type events. What does the government do? What do they think? How do you take all of this and use a phrase that I learned recently? How do you turn all this into an apple? Right now, you got all this applesauce. And all applesauce gives you is everyone can have a little bit of a spoonful and everyone gets a different spoonful. When you got an apple, right, you got a solid item that somebody can take a bite out of, right? And I don't know if that's a good analogy. It's something I learned recently or I heard recently. And it kind of makes sense. I don't want to have to go into sort of the logical analysis of that metaphor. You know, maybe you get it, maybe you don't. Right. How do you take all of this applesauce and turn it into an apple? That's what all this UFO stuff is. And to get to a conspiracy conclusion, you have to make some assumptions, right? You have to assume that somebody knows something and then they don't want anyone else to know about it for some reason other than just standard procedure. Like I said, lots of information gets controlled because of very logical, very mundane reasons. Um, there's nothing conspiratorial about it. And where, and I guess I haven't really touched on this yet, 
Like, why would the government want to even engage in conspiratorial behavior about an extraterrestrial presence? Now, that's something we haven't really discussed yet, and I think I want to save that for the end. Right? But that's what you would need in order for a conspiracy to exist. There needs to be a goal. And that goal would be to conceal some information from the public for some reason. And that requires there to be some known information. We can speculate all kinds of wild reasons why somebody might not want somebody to know something. I mean, in that way, somebody cheating on their, their spouse or their significant other or whatever, and somebody else knows about it, they keep it quiet, they do things to make sure they don't get found out about it. I mean, that's a low-level conspiracy that millions of people engage in all the time. Right? There's a motive. You have a motive first. And right now, motive isn't for a conspiracy. The motive is to keep information about the vulnerability of our nuclear sites from the public. So we didn't really learn about them uh, at the time. And only kind of came out later. But the government knew about them. Or at least, I keep saying government. And it's true. But I don't like saying the government. Because when you say the government, it begins to treat the entire federal government as one single entity. It's not. A government doesn't know anything. People know things, right? So it's more, what do people in the government know? That's a important distinction because those people move in and out. You know, their knowledge can be based on whatever their position is. They're in one position for a few years. They may know a lot about something. The moment they take another position, get out, their information stops. So there's not just this big repository, this not big wizard of Oz sitting around who knows everything that everybody in the government ever. There's not even a records place like that. We have say a system of records. There's just not a singular place where records from every agency is recorded in some way. Like, if you want to go search record, you got to search records of individual agencies. And sometimes you have to reach out to individual offices, random, disparate location, just to see what records they might even have. Not only can you not search them all, you don't even know what they have. Any motivation that government would have had to conceal any information would have required that information to be agreed upon and in some format that can be protected. We are still talking about the 80s when, while there were computers, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't Windows yet, and maybe Windows 3.1 was out, but definitely didn't have Windows even 95. I don't even think we had Windows 3.1 in 88. I don't think so. I think that was an early 90s thing. But, um, can't protect information you don't have, and you can't control information you don't have. So if you think about, practically speaking, were people writing reports about those incidences? Maybe, but maybe not. They may not have wanted anyone to commit any of the regulation to writing. What they would have done, and what likely happened, is you would have had somebody, rather, I mean, if this were Air Force bases, we were talking about 
someone from Air Force Intelligence, maybe Defense Intelligence, someone from Strategic Command, uh, maybe Office of Special Investigations, maybe even the FBI, and to a lesser extent the CIA, would have come in and interviewed these people, and they would have taken So the only tangible record that would have existed at the time would have been those notes taken by those investigators. And generally speaking, notes taken by investigators aren't usually a disclosable item. Think about a police investigation, right? Someone, they go and investigate, and they collect all this data and this information. But if they never do anything with it, they don't just release it to the public. You know, it either gets destroyed or maybe filed away if the case isn't closed completely. And there are rules that if it's an ongoing investigation, meaning they don't know what's happened, you need to be certain. And those records aren't released. That's not a process that is unique to UFOs or anything else. And so that's not surprising. And then again, we have that psychological effect. Stratcom commander, four-star general probably. What does he think in 1980-whatever when he gets a report that some of his missiles went offline, his enlisted soldiers outside are telling him they saw UFOs, his officers down below are saying, we don't know what caused him to go offline, but they're checking out fine now. What is he supposed to think? What's he supposed to do? Who's he supposed to report that to, right? And, and the way that different things get broken down, not only in the military, but just bureaucracies in general, the commander of STRATCOM is not engaged in the day-to-day protection of nuclear assets. He is a manager who oversees the training and equipment of these vast organizations that handle all these missions. You know, the execution of the missions is given to the commanders at the ground level. So it would have been more what at the wing or the installation commander for those bases that have those what did they think? You know, and those are impressions that I don't think have been released. None of the reporting on any of this stuff has brought around very many installation commanders. Now, I did see at least one squadron commander talk about their experiences in the UK and that event, mainly because it literally was the squadron commander who went out there into the forest to look at that thing. If you want to read about that one. But not these nuclear events, right? And you can even take it a step further when considering the overseas aspect. You know, what is some general on the United States side of the ocean thinking about this theoretical sighting that he gets reported to from even if it is some squadron commander from security forces or something along some other people what? Like, do we know what this is? Do we have any other confirmation to tell us what happened here? And the answer is going to be no, we don't. So the way commanders look at something, it's going to be like, do I have any actionable intelligence? Is there any data I have from this that 
tells me I need to go do something? And the answer is really no. Especially at the base level. One, what can you do? Didn't show up on radar, or if it did show up on radar, didn't show up in a way that they recognized what it was. And in some instances, you know, even when it did show up on radar, a lot of times if they scrambled jets after some of these things, they never were able to catch up to them and do anything about it. So it's usually a situation where these things are detected, someone does something, and then um, they never see anything. They never actually find anything. Whatever, whatever the phenomenon is, it leaves or disappears or maybe it was never there. First, what I don't know and what I haven't heard or seen is any reports of aircraft being scrambled at these nuclear sites that were under you know, UFO observation or whatever at the time. Because according to the interviews that people involved, it lasted quite a while. Definitely long enough to launch some what it would have probably been F-15s or uh, you know, maybe an F-16. Maybe even some F-4s could have been running around then. I'm not really sure what would have been the fighter aircraft designated to respond to something like that. But you would have thought that we have an aerial threat in our nuclear missile silo that we better get some airborne interceptors on site. Uh, ASAP. And maybe they did. It's really hard for me to believe that if you relay um, these observations up the chain and not get a fighter response. Now, if they didn't get a fighter response, it's likely that communication wasn't made back up the chain of command that, holy shit, we're under some kind of airspace violation at the very least, right? You're talking about a craft that they saw over restricted airspace. You know, so that's really only two options. You know, either fighters were dispatched, intercepted, and whatever they encountered or saw or didn't see has not been released or discussed as part of these disclosures. Or the message just never got somewhere in a way that it should have have and fighters were never launched. There seem to be some reports that some of the communication systems might have gone down at the same time these weapons went offline, which could have prevented you know those commands from calling in fighters. They also maybe had bigger problems. It may have not even occurred to them, holy shit, our missiles are going offline for no reason. This is going to go up here. You know, they're just trying to wrap their brains around what's going on and how can all of these missiles just start going offline. You know, they probably got checklists and all kinds of procedures that they got to go through. Which nuclear missile silos start clipping off. Uh, maybe they didn't have time to radio back and say, oh, by the way, send me some jets to check out what the hell's in the air over here. Uh, so it's hard, hard to say, right? You know, and because the officers down in the bunkers weren't the ones up on top seeing the phenomenon, and anyone they called the threat into also was another person removed from the observation. You know, who knows what kind of credibility um, that was there. Though I would say, you know, given the itchy trigger figure of that time period, just the military in general, it just would literally shock me if information wasn't communicated some that this airspace was being violated and they didn't launch some damn fighters. You know, maybe someday we'll learn whether they did or they didn't. No. But whether they did and whether they didn't is important 
because it illustrates either an acceptance or a disregarding of any real threat. And you know, we'll just assume, because we don't have any evidence that fighters were launched, or even if they were launched, they didn't get there in time to, to see or say or do anything about it, that um, it's just not a good data point. And if I remember correctly, I think some of the eyewitnesses said that at some point, this craft stopped whatever they were being seen doing and just you know, flew out of sight super fast for any other aircraft in the area. So that might be the most logical explanation. Even if they did launch jets, they didn't get there in time. Which is why we don't have any reports of anything being encountered from a pilot standpoint. And so commanders of the chain are faced with this unknown. So that's what here, commanders, military, we talk about unknowns. Those were the known unknown. Right? We know the missiles went offline. There was probably some sort of electronic record. And when they went and did all the diagnostics, they probably could have narrowed down maybe exactly what could have been happening in the circuits. At least if that would have happened in a modern circuit, probably could have done that. It's hard to say, you know, in 1988 or so, we're probably talking about set 1970s technology in those bunkers. Difficult to say whether that kind of fault tracing would have been available to them. 